This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. My view is that if you do science and don't communicate it, why did you bother? Why did you bother? <laughs> you know, if your audience is policymakers or funders or the public, then you really have to make them care about the problem you've solved. Why was this worth your time? Why was it worth someone's money? That's Marsha McNutt. Her extraordinary career includes being at the forefront of discoveries in ocean science, the head of a task force grappling with the devastating Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and the editor of America's leading science journal. Today, she heads the National Academy of Sciences, the nation's foremost body providing independent science advice to policymakers. This is so great to be talking to you today. You have such a, a record in science and communication of science that's really very powerful. You were an important part of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill response in 2010. As I understand it, you were very effective in that. Did you learn anything from that that we can apply to the disaster we're living through now? Well, Alan, first of all, thank you for that compliment coming from someone like you, who is legendary in communication, it is the highest honor. And I've often referred to Deepwater Horizon as my Omaha Beach. It was a certainly a turning point in my life, but also, I think, such a learning experience for the scientific community on delivering in disasters because Deepwater Horizon was a chance for science to really shine. It was um, a time when people were watching that television screen, glued to it for days on end, watching that oily black mess emanate from that broken wellhead into the beautiful Gulf of Mexico. And they were mad. They were upset. They were angry at what was happening. But at the time, no one knew how to control that, how to collect the oil, how to stop the gusher a mile deep under the pristine Gulf of Mexico. And it was a time when science came through and delivered a solution to not only capping the well, stopping the disaster, but also figuring out so many new things about the ecosystem of the Gulf and about the behavior of oil in the deep sea that we never knew before. You know, I, I keep looking back on that and say for this current pandemic, science will again deliver. And we can be the heroes of the day as long as we keep our eye on the ball and we don't get distracted by politics. 
were there elements of organization or the, uh, the way you learned in that disaster to call resources together that we can use as we plan for the next disaster or that we can use now, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, we are reactivating some of the very same processes that we used during Deepwater Horizon during the current pandemic. And as a good example, we found that there was a need for a type of science that we call actionable science. And actionable science is science that is delivered on a policymaker or decision maker's timescale. Often that means they need the answer overnight. Mm. So you have to convene a group of experts quickly. They have to analyze data and come to a decision that they can deliver in terms that a non-scientist will understand that allows that person to make a go, no-go decision, and you have to quality control it within a matter of hours, and you have to make sure that you're right. And actionable science is unlike science under any other circumstances because the stakes are so high, the time scale is so short, and the communication has to be spot on. There can be no misunderstanding. So that's mm. one kind of science we delivered. But we also understood that there was a different kind of science that was needed. While everyone was focusing on the here and now, on the tactical response to the oil spill, we needed to wall off another group of people to worry about the longer term ramifications of the oil spill, and in this case, of the pandemic as well. Not what's happening now or what's happening tomorrow, but what could be the longer term consequences of the oil spill or the pandemic that no one sees coming because they aren't thinking long term? That the long tail of the oil spill or the long tail of the pandemic the gotchas that because we aren't looking out on a long enough horizon are going to actually cause the biggest problems in the case of the pandemic to health, to the economy, to perhaps even political stability. Mm -hmm. And then if we saw this chain of consequences unfolding, how could we intervene to stop it? Yeah, the idea that you start out suspecting that it's going to be more complex than you first think it is, is a pretty good starting point. How did you start out in basic research, especially geophysics? What, why did you choose that and not, not astrophysics? What led you to that? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was a major in physics and like many of my classmates, I actually had thought I would go into astrophysics or nuclear physics because those were the hot fields when I was a graduate student or when I was an undergraduate student. But um, I, had, uh, I had been the kind of child 
that loved the outdoors. I grew up in Minnesota. I spent my winters ice skating and skiing. I spent my summers canoeing and sailing and swimming. And I always imagined myself doing science outdoors. So uh, when I was in college, in addition to taking physics classes, I also took some geology classes. And I loved going out in the field with geology, but um, geology at that time, which was um, early in the 1970s, was sort of a, an arm-waving field. But one of my physics professors, uh, just as I was considering what to do with my career, showed me the very first article written for a popular audience in Scientific American by a man named John Dewey that was written about plate tectonics. And it changed my life because I then realized that that geosciences didn't have to be arm-wavy. Here was this beautiful quantitative theory that put geology into a beautiful paradigm, a nice, neat context that could explain the mountains that I loved and the oceans and everything else. And so I did a 90-degree turn, and instead of going into uh, one of the subdisciplines of physics, I decided to go into geophysics and, in fact, marine geophysics because most of the plate boundaries were underwater, and I never looked back. You know, I think that's the same article I read when it came out, and it thrilled me. I was so excited about it. Look, look, I was right. I saw that the coast of Africa looked like the coast of South America, and and yes. and, and I, I thought I had discovered it myself because there were probably a million other people with the same thought. But this was, as you said, data-driven. Yes, yes. It's not just a coincidence. Yeah. It means something. Yes, exactly. You know, you talked about outdoor activities. And one of the things I love to do when I'm helping a scientist bring their work before the public, one of the things I like to do is to show that the scientist is a regular person just like us, that they're not in white robes on a mountaintop. They are, in fact, like us, except I've read something about you that I don't think is like me or anybody I know, which is that you are, let me get this right, you are a competitive barrel racer at rodeos? <laughs> is that true? Okay, so... <laughs> I can't the, wait to hear this. The true competitive barrel racers at rodeos would laugh at the thought that I am in their league, but... I do have many fast horses, and I do love to barrel race, and I do have a drawer full of silver buckles that I have won on my very fast horses. What is it? What, what, I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen it. What do you okay. do in a barrel race? So a barrel race um, is one of the few competitions uh, designed for women who love to ride fast horses. And uh, what happens is three very large barrels are set up in a triangular pattern in an arena. And um, you race your horse into the arena and you run a cloverleaf pattern 
around the three barrels and it's time to vent. And whoever can run the pattern the fastest wins. So it's um, a, a wonderful event because there's nothing subjective about it. It's based on turning fast and uh, running fast, and whoever gets the lowest time is the winner without tipping over the barrel. If you tip over or, a barrel, then you have a penalty. Or in my case, falling off the horse. Oh, yes. You don't want to fall <laughs> off the horse. No, no, no. no. But, but I, I love that part where you said it, there's nothing subjective about it. That's just like science, the doing of science right, anyway. Right, right, right. The communicating of science, I think, needs to have some emotion in it. We need to get excited about it. And you have really devoted a lot of your life to communicating science. When you were the, the, uh, the editor of the science journal called Science, and now in, in your role at the Academy, what are the elements that make for good science communication? My view is that if you do science and don't communicate it, why did you bother <laughs> Why did you bother? You know, yeah, if, right. if you can't let your audience know what you did, how you did it, and why they should care, then you've really wasted your time. So I think the elements of good communication are, first of all, understand who your audience is. I think that there are many uh, scientific studies that we know the audience, honestly, is just going to be other scientists because the results may be a bit nerdy or specialized. That's fine. Then you're just communicating to other scientists and you can use jargon and um, uh, shorthand and things like that. But if your audience is policymakers or funders or the public, then you really have to make them care about the problem you've solved. Why, why was this worth your time? Why was it worth someone's money? And then you also have to make them uh, believe that what you've found is truly the right answer. Why should they believe that this is um, the important breakthrough that you think it is? And um, how is it going to impact them? I, I think that, uh, you know, science is um, a, uh, another version of all politics is local. Mm. All science is local. Take climate change and talking to someone in uh, Kansas, talking to them about polar bears really doesn't make a lot of sense. If you can't talk to them about how it affects farming in Kansas or ranching in Kansas or the viability of certain commodities, then you're really not going to uh, reach them. And messenger is important as well. People in Kansas are much more likely to relate to a messenger who's also either from Kansas or right now working in Kansas because they know that someone who has Kansas roots or is Kansas-based understands their issues and has their best interests at heart. That element of trust seems to be so much right at, near the top of the list. Yeah. Because no matter how good your message is, and, and knowing your audience too, no matter how good your message is, 
if you're not aware of how it's being received by the people who are listening, you're talking to yourself to a great extent, I think. I think you have to start with shared values. Um, I have uh, a lot of people of different backgrounds that I interact with, and I always start by relating to them with shared values, whether it's that we all love our grandchildren and want them to grow up and enjoy the same things that we enjoy, or whether it's our animals that we care for, or whatever it is, you have to find some common ground, some shared values that we can all agree on, because that then provides a basis for um, believing that um, we're coming from uh, a common point of uh, trust and a common, uh, some common ground. When you talk to a general audience and you want to to get into the subject of basic science, basic research, hardly anything we do nowadays, it isn't, hasn't been generated by some basic research at some point in our history. How do you, how do you convey to them the, the value of investing in basic research? Uh, you know, it seems to me that the distinction between basic research and applied has almost lost its importance now because there is research that we just haven't yet figured out what it's useful for. Mm. But in my very long career, I'm not sure I could name one bit of research that I know of that's more than X years old that hasn't found a useful application. And timescales can be different. For example, take quantum physics. Quantum physics was discovered many, many decades ago, and at the time was a curiosity. But then it became the fundamental building block of the information age. And numerous companies, multi-billion dollar industries have been built upon the information age, all of which rests on quantum physics. So then we take something like gravitational waves. Gravitational waves have taken the the world by storm because they were predicted by Einstein, um, you know, about nearly 100 years ago, and were finally uh, experimentally verified. I think it's going to be a long time before we have an application for gravitational waves. But am I sure that we will? Absolutely. Just like it took a long time to find multi-billion dollar industries that depend on quantum physics, so will there be industries that depend on gravitational waves. Does the academy do anything? Do you have programs in which the idea, the point is to encourage an interest in both basic research and innovation? So um, it depends on what you mean by uh, encourage and interest in. Uh, One of our programs uh, called Research to Reward 
is more of a communications program, which points out to uh, anyone who, even young people, um, of the obscure origins of many of today's important breakthroughs that we take for granted. But at the time that the fundamental science was done, we didn't know where it was going. And so programs like that can help inspire young people to pursue careers in, in basic research because they see that it is not you know, building castles in the air, that these um, fundamental discoveries actually lead to benefits for humankind that are jaw-dropping. Mm. So we have things like that. Um, we do have roundtables and other uh, convenings like that that bring together researchers, business, and government for the purpose of trying to promote innovation. Because the researchers have the view of what are the latest, greatest, newest things that are happening? How can that interface with new products that industry might want to promote? And how can government funding help create important matchmaking? And that's a direct way for science to have an effect on the economy. Exactly. Which when people, sometimes people who denigrate science are also looking for a way to improve the economy, and they got it right there. The academy from its beginnings with Lincoln asking the academy to study submarines for, for use in the Civil War has always been asked to give reports and to do work facing a current, not just a general problem, but sometimes a current crisis is the Academy doing any work now, not planning for a future crisis, but working on vaccines or some other treatment or some other understanding of where we are in the pandemic? Is there any work on this current crisis now that you could point to? Uh, yes, quite a few things. Um, so probably the highest profile work that we're doing now is a report that we just delivered to the nation. And that was on the Q. The Q. The Q. The Q. The Q. Who gets the vaccine first uh, and why? Mm. What should be the distribution plan? And what is scientifically justifiable and ethically um, motivated? in terms of giving certain populations first crack at the vaccine. So, for example, the um, academy said that the frontline medical workers are the people that need to be first in line because they are essential to the pandemic response. They are exposed to those who have COVID-19, and uh, therefore they're vulnerable. They can't socially distance from the disease. Uh, 
and we need them to be on the job. And we don't want them to be a hotspot themselves. Exactly, exactly. And then other frontline workers are also um, right up there in the front of the queue. And um, uh, the, um, the distribution plan also prioritizes other frontline workers, and then it starts uh, prioritizing people who are very vulnerable, mm. like the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions. And farther down the list would be people like me who can easily socially distance. I can do my job, you know, isolated up here on my little mountaintop in coastal California, away from everyone else. I, I can go safely months. It sounds to me very much like the instructions on the airplane for the parent to put on the oxygen mask first before giving it to the child so that real care can be taken. And at first time we, we hear that, we think, what? First first the parent, then the kid? But you got to put the people at the head of the queue. Who are going to take care of the others, right? Exactly, exactly. Right. Yes. Well, this has been a really interesting and fun conversation. I'm, we're running out of time, but I thank you not only for the conversation, but for the work you're doing at the Academy and the work that you do to communicate about science. I really am I'm grateful to you for that. Well, thank you, Alan, and thank you for all the work you do to raise the quality and the profile of the importance of communicating science well. You are literally a legend, and everyone looks to you for how to do it well. So you're, thank you're you. embarrassing me. Thank no, you. No, no, no. <laughs> thank you very much. Nothing like having a celebrity to carry your banner. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Great to talk with you. Great to talk to you too. All right. Thanks. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Marsha McNutt is the first woman to head the National Academy of Sciences, and she was the first woman to head the U.S. Geological Survey. It was during her tenure there that she headed the team tasked with understanding the devastating extent of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. You can find out more about the work of the National Academy of Sciences and Marsha McNutt's career at nas.gov. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience.
And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Freeman Verbowski. His 18 years as president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, has transformed a sleepy commuter school into a launching pad for hundreds of black scientists and doctors. Science is not about a few privileged people. It is about all of us. That is the message. Can we bring people of different races, ethnic and religious backgrounds together and teach them how to study together, to work together, to understand each other's strengths and challenges and predicaments in such a way that as the students leave, they are prepared to lead in a, an increasingly diverse society. Freeman Hrabowski, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.